What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. Today, we've got a really awesome interview lined up. I have uh, Vivas on the line here. He used to work at Tesla on their battery materials team, now going to Stanford getting his MBA, also working for Benchmark uh, Mineral Intelligence, a really awesome company uh, doing selling reports and data about the mining world. We're going to get all into what goes into lithium-ion batteries, electric vehicles. So pumped about this. Uh, Vivas, welcome to HyperChange. Thanks for having me, Gally. Yeah. And so um, I've talked to you a, a couple times in the past and you just really have one of the best understandings of what goes into these batteries. And I mean, we're talking about a totally new propulsion system for, for society right now, internal combustion engine running on oil to the electric drivetrain and batteries. Um, and there's a whole different stack of you know materials and minerals that go into creating these batteries. And today I really want to get deep in that uh, you know supply chain and really look into what is going to allow us to go from producing you know half a million electric vehicles, a million electric vehicles a year, to tens of millions, which is really what we need to tackle the climate crisis. Absolutely. You hit, you hit the nail on the head, my friend. Like, this is the problem that we need to solve, right? We have the technology. Now we just need the entire supply chain to keep up with us so that we can get tens of millions of cars out there on the roads. Awesome. So you... Uh... Thank you to you and your team for putting together this amazing uh, PowerPoint presentation. Uh, here's the QR code that you all can see. If you want to, there's also a link in the description if you want to open it now to follow along with us. Um, but we're going to open source this presentation, and it's awesome. I just can't wait to to just jump into it. So um, why don't you kick us off here? We got slide two. Um, you know this the modern lithium ion battery, the platform technology that it is. Maybe you could give us a little history about um, how this all started. Yeah, absolutely. So what's important to note is that, you know, where we are today with lithium ion batteries is as a result of decades of development, gone through minor iterations that build up over time to get us to the point where they can be the propulsion system for electric vehicles. So modern lithium ion batteries was first used in consumer electronics about 30 years ago by Sony. And, you know, there, there's been a lot of different changes in lithium ion chemistry, there's been a lot of different changes in the way in which lithium ion battery cells have been manufactured. The R&D priorities have changed, but essentially the conclusion is it's taken about 30 years of iteration to get to this point. Wow. Um, there are a few sort of seminal moments in the history of lithium ion battery technology, and that's kind of what this slide is, is showing us. You know, going from the first use of a lithium ion battery technology in a consumer electronics product to the first use in the iPhone, which is still one of the biggest consumer electronic products ever, to Tesla Roadsters using them for the first time, to the first mega factories of lithium ion battery cells being built by Panasonic, by LG Chem, by CATL. And finally, you know, in terms of the history of lithium ion batteries, probably the biggest moment that has resulted in where we are today was the announcement of the Gigafactory in 2014. So wow. You know, at the time that the Gigafactory was announced, it would have single-handedly doubled the capacity of lithium-ion batteries. And the reason for that is because, number one, Tesla just needed the battery cells. But number two, when you build larger and larger factories of scale, it allows you to better push down the operating cost of production of those batteries. So what else is important to note over here is the use of the word platform technology. And I think, you know, you've got technology and you've got platforms. It applies over here because of how important the battery is to the future trends of energy storage. So what I mean by platform in a hardware sense is that the batteries, the technology upon which utility scale storage, electric vehicles, that those two product sets are built. Yeah. Another way to think about this is like SpaceX as a company 
is a platform company. I mean, Planet Labs can't put its satellites up in space by itself, right? Doug and Bob couldn't get to the International Space Station by themselves. The US Air Force can't do some of the work that it's doing in space without the use of the rockets that SpaceX has you know, been able to construct and perfect over the last couple of decades. So I would assume, like, you know, for the rest of the presentation, the underlying assumption here is that the battery's that important. It is the basis upon which everything else that we're doing for electrification and for electrifying the grid can happen. Yeah, and I, I've been using this analogy more and more of like the atomic unit is sort of like the startup speak of Tesla's the battery because, you know, once you get that battery more efficient or a little bit cheaper, like there's just more and more industries that you can disrupt, like Model S and X, but then we got the battery a little more efficient, a little cheaper that allowed the Model 3 and the Model Y, then the battery, the new batteries or is good enough to where we can actually disrupt a semi truck and then a pickup truck. Like you see how that improvement in just that core underlying technology allows Tesla to disrupt all of these other different industries. Um, and I'm also curious, before getting into how Tesla just totally blew up the lithium ion market when they launched the Gigafactory, like you were saying, you know, what was, what did you actually work on at Tesla? Could you give us like a little, uh, a micro background there? Yeah, absolutely. So I was one of the managers of the battery materials supply. And so my team was responsible for going out and, you know, securing the supply of the raw materials used to make the battery cells themselves. And if you want more detail than that, you'll get it at Tesla Battery Day. <laughs> awesome. And so, so going back to this slide here, you know, what fascinated me about Tesla was this, they were really the first people to say, okay, there's a bunch of these batteries and laptops that have really become commercialized in smartphones, the iPhone. Um, but can we really string 4,000 of these together and power a car? That was sort of like an insane proposition. And then they literally needed more batteries than existed in the world. And that's why they had to build this gigafactory. So um, maybe you could take it from there because I feel like that, like you said, was just a truly inflection moment. And now it's sort of taken for granted that all these mega factories are being built. But at the time, the Gigafactory was insane. It was like a pile of dirt in the Nevada desert. Everyone thought Tesla was crazy for putting in a couple billion in CapEx to build this. Now it's turned into one of their strategic advantages is that vertical integration to lock up that supply of, of batteries. I mean, this is why I get blue in the face telling people Tesla's not a car company. Tesla's a battery company. It just happens to make cars. And... It's because if you look at electric vehicles on a worldwide basis, regardless of who the producer is, your battery costs are going to be anywhere from 25 to 40% of the bill of materials to build your electric vehicle. There's nothing else that gets close in terms of the bill of materials for, for making a car. And so six years ago, when the Gigafactory decision was made, I wasn't at the company. But what I'm assuming went through the minds of the people making this decision was this is the biggest portion of our bill of materials. It's also the component that we are going to run out of in the world. There is no way that there are going to be enough battery cells in the world to keep up with the demand that we are seeing from our consumers. And so that's why that decision was made. And then, like you said, ever since then, when, when the Tesla Gigafactory was announced, the only other major plants were the plants that are on this page. So the CATL plant, the Panasonic plant, the LG Chem plant. And now the game is completely different. Now there are 143 tracked mega factories by Benchmark Minerals, encompassing wow. 2.5 terawatt hours of battery production worldwide. This is insane. And, and this is all, you, you think this has really been catalyzed by that gigafactory and the success? Like, would you say these lithium ion me mega factories are pretty much all for vehicles, you know, trucks, vans, cars? So these lithium ion, the biggest, 
these lithium ion battery factories were all catalyzed by, Tesla, by the Tesla Gigafactory announcement. But not every single one of these lithium ion battery cells is going to be used for vehicles. So Elon like has publicly stated on multiple earnings calls and multiple events that he expects the energy business to be as big as the vehicle business one day. And utilities around the world are looking at solar plus storage, solar plus wind, you know, en energy generation and en paired with batteries as storage assets as a future business model for them. There has to be enough lithium ion capacity for those applications as well. Unfortunately, however, what we're seeing, and this is on page six, is given just how great the demand is for consumer electric vehicles, that there's going to be a little bit of a mismatch in what's available. So what we see over here is our projection from benchmark up to 2030 of how many electric vehicles are going to be on the roads, as well as what is the gigawatt hour consumption of those electric vehicles. And this encompasses everything, two wheelers, three wheelers, um, you know, regular vehicles that you and I would drive, like a Model 3, Cybertrucks, buses. And what it stacks okay. up to is about 1.7 terawatt hours will be used for vehicles. And, and how many vehicles assume, is that assuming? So if you look at the little bubbles over here, it's 12.7 million in China, 7.5 million in Europe, 5.5 million in North America, and the rest of the world will have about five and a half million. Wow. So that would be about... That's looking like, what, 30 to 40 million vehicles a year, and that's enough battery capacity for about that much, which would be about yeah. half of vehicle sales today. Now, wow. keep in mind, there's going to be a, a significant amount of differentiation in terms of what's the kilowatt hour per vehicle in each of these geographies and by totally. application as well. So the Chinese consumer doesn't want what the American consumer want. A jurisdiction that is buying buses in Europe and a jurisdiction that's buying buses in Brazil want two different things. Totally. But the main point out of this is going back to your question on, you know, will these batteries all be used for electric vehicles? 1.7 terawatt hours are being used for electric vehicles if we assume that all of these projections for vehicles are going to be true. Mm -hmm. Now, we just talked earlier about how there's approximately 2.5 terawatt hours of battery factories coming up now over the next decade. Yeah. So, and I do, I do want to pick a bone on this because I think your Tesla estimates are too low because you have them at 148 gigawatt hours by 2030. And Elon mm -hmm. Musk has said he wants to do two terawatt hours potentially or sort of dropping these hints of the Terra factory terawatt hours. So yeah. I don't know. My personal opinion of this chart is like if when after battery day, when Tesla announces their thing, this Tesla could literally be triple that leader of CATL by 2030 yeah. all depends hey, on how fast they could ramp. But that's kind of my personal theory is that's the breakthrough of battery day to kind of frame why this is such a big deal for Tesla and so fascinating because this is the whole supply and these numbers that Elon is throwing out are like mind boggling, you know, it would like it would dwarf anything on this chart, right? I don't disagree at all. Let me just be clear that what's on here is based on what has been announced so far. This chart will change over time. Yeah. Right? So gotcha. And, and if it changes, I mean, that just reinforces the point on what we're talking about over here is that 1.7 terawatt hours number is just going to keep going up. Totally. So let's just say that this is static right now, right? About 80 gigawatt hours 10 years from now will be consumer electronics, cell phones and batteries and all that, because that's just kind of growing at GDP. Wow. It's almost nothing compared to electric vehicles. It's crazy. But at the same time, you know, you've got, you know, if you add the consumer electronics onto that, what you have left is just 700 gigawatt hours used for energy storage versus oh. the 1.7 that's being used for electric, for electric vehicles. I mean, that's a little concerning right there because we want the business to be as big as the vehicle business, 
and there's only 40% of the battery capacity left for that business. And the gotcha. business model has to change. And see, I, I, to me, it wasn't making sense for a second. So I was like, oh, well, we have enough to build all the cars. But that point you're making is very important, which is what Tesla's been touting. I think not enough not people are realizing, you know, the mega pack, what they're doing to stabilize the grid. You're saying that could be an equal amount of terawatt hours needed. I mean, Elon Musk has said that business could be just as big. So that's really where the supply constraint comes in. It's like, well, if we're going to do vehicles and the grid, then there's just nowhere near enough battery capacity, even with this, all these planned factories. It's not just Elon. I mean, just look at the, the trend in the utilities market right now. There is, in North America, a coal plant is going out of business once every 14 days. Love it. Right? I love it too, but we are going to have to replace that generation asset. Totally. And something like solar and wind coupled with battery storage is likely the solution that will emerge from a pure LCOE basis. LCOE is levelized cost of, of energy. Mm -hmm. So from a pure LCOE basis, we're going to need more batteries than we've, what we've had left if you were to take out what's being used for electric vehicles and take out what's being used for consumer electronics on this chart. So moving to the next slide, I think this is really interesting and something that I've had to learn a lot about researching all of this, um, that not all battery cells are created equal. And for different use cases, there might be different batteries. Like we've seen a lot of rumors about lithium iron phosphate for Tesla in China, because maybe that's better for their consumers there. They're not, you know, I used to think Tesla was just doing one battery technology that they were going to use for everything. But I think it's becoming more and more clear that for different uses, um, and different companies, there's all sorts of different batteries and different chemistries, as well as qualities within those, um, or that's kind of my understanding. But um, I'm curious if you could help us break down this, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three chart. Yeah, I mean, the way that we see it as, as of right now, the market has evolved into batteries that can be used for Western automotive applications. So these are, you know, very discerning customers who want certain characteristics. They want long range, they want fast recharge times, and they want to be able to hold on to their battery pack for a very long time. And the level below that is a Chinese consumer. Uh, and once again, the Chinese automotive market is 50% of the global electric vehicle market right now. So that's why that differentiation between China and non-China is important. Mm -hmm. And the characteristics that a Chinese consumer is looking for is not as highly specified as that of a Western consumer. And that just has to do with the, the driver profile of who's driving these cars around in terms of what distance they travel on a daily basis in an electric vehicle, when they get the charge, where do they get the charge? You just don't need batteries that are nearly as high quality. And to be frank, they're willing to pay less for a premium battery as compared to a Western automaker because they're okay with battery replaceability in hmm. China. And then tier number three is like the stuff that goes into your iPhone, basically the stuff that goes into your laptops. Um, it doesn't need to be highly specced for the use in an automotive application. If your iPhone battery dies, it is what it is. You go and pick up a new a new cell phone. If your Tesla battery dies, all of a sudden you've got some issues, right? You mentioned sort of two markets happening at once. We have this Western automotive market with sort of a higher quality batteries. Um, and that's like half the EVs in the world. The other half is these uh, EVs in China, BYD, those kind of companies, I guess, tier two. I'm curious if you could sort of break down this this sort of divergence we're seeing and how that's trending with these battery mega factories. Absolutely. So right now, like I said, it's, it's simplistic, but you could basically say the EV market is 50, 50 China, non-China. The battery market is even more skewed. So today somewhere around 65% of the battery cells that are being used for automotive applications are being made in China. And we're projecting that even 10 years from now in 2030, that 
China will still be somewhere close to 70% of the battery capacity that's being built. And once again, not all of that is going to be used for automotive applications. Some of that will be used for consumer electronics, some of that will be used for Chinese auto. But in terms of who holds the keys to battery capacity on a global basis 10 years from now, China's you know, far and away the winner. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And and one thing that I've also understood is how complex these supply chains are, like shipping things. Like I think the way Tesla works now, like, okay, so they're mining lithium somewhere, like, I don't know, maybe Australia, they have to ship it to somewhere in China to like refine it. And then they ship it to Nevada, where Panasonic turns it into a battery cell, and they're going to ship it to Fremont to put it into a Model S or X, ship that Model S or X maybe back to China, if that's what they're buying there. Like, there's so many layers and crazy little pieces to this supply chain. Um, and that's, I, it's almost hard to wrap your head around how complicated it is. And you have this awesome slide here, which takes us through these steps. Like it's not as easy as just getting some lithium out of the ground and turning it into a battery. Like it's so yeah. much more complicated than that. Um, so I'm curious if you could help us unpack that. First of all, for the lithium ion battery as a concept, for any lithium ion battery, it's not just lithium as like the main ingredient, right? There are many different ingredients out there. The bill of materials for lithium ion batteries have anywhere from like 80 to 150 parts, depending on how specialized you're trying to get. And what you see over here is a very simplistic chart of what are the major supply chain steps to get from an atom of lithium coming out of a mine to it being used in a vehicle, right? So you first go through a mining process and then you have to be going through a specialty chemical process. Then it goes into being a cathode or an anode or an electrolyte or a separator which are sort of the major building blocks of the lithium ion battery cell. Yep. They all get manufactured together as a cell, which gets put into a pack, which gets put into a car, which gets put into the hands of a consumer. So, you know, I just laid out like seven steps and even that is like too simple. Like there's a, there's a level even below that. Wow. And so could you walk us behind, you know, you have dollars here, 50 to 70 billion required for lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, um, you know, what are these numbers behind these different steps? Yeah, absolutely. So the assumption behind this page is if we were to take all of the announcements from automotive manufacturers and all of the announcements from battery cell manufacturers as fact and say that they are going to happen. Like this so is how many gigawatt hours we're going to pump out or whatever. Exactly. That 2.5 terawatt hours will definitely happen. Those 30 million vehicles on roads, those 30 million electric vehicles on the roads in 2030 will definitely happen. And then we assume how much cathode do we need? How much anode do we need? How much specialty chemical manufacturing do we need? That's where we arrive at these numbers for approximate investment that's needed. I mean, these are not small numbers. Like and this 50, is to hit 70, that 2.5 terawatt, which is in the other slide that you were referencing. Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So, I mean, these, these are not tiny numbers at all. And, and to be frank, I still think that we have undershot these numbers. Yeah. Um, because the, these industries have major CapEx overruns, major delays. The... The problem over here is the scope and scale of the challenge is just so large and it is not just putting more vehicles on the road. It's building an entire supply chain to go along with it. Wow. And I mean, talking to you has really opened my eyes to the just how complex and how new of a sort of expertise and challenge this is because it's really a totally different supply chain. Like I think it's kind of crazy a tangent, but Saudi Aramco, I think is like the world's most viable company more than Apple, like 2.2 trillion. And they just make oil to go to run all of these, you know, propulsion technology. But if we're switching that to the electric drive chain, like this is how big 
these industries are that we're replacing. Like this is just massive. Um, and there's going to be so many growing pains. And that's what you've helped me understand. You're highlighting here many parts of the supply chain could break. So uh, maybe you could walk us part. This looks through, like the cathode is one of your first examples. Yeah. So the cathode is one example that I love to talk about because in my experience, just in terms of going to investor conferences, seeing what's being talked about in the press, people love to talk about lithium or they love to talk about cars and batteries and the stuff in the middle sometimes gets lost. <laughs> so cathode is one example of this. So right now we have about 84,000 megawatt hours of cathode capacity out there. And if you look at what's under construction and what's also being planned in the next decade, there's approximately 2.3 terawatt hours of capacity being planned against that 2.5 of battery that's being planned. So it's not, you know, it doesn't line up, but it's close. It gets yeah, 2.3, 2.5. Well, I'll give them a pass on that. It's close enough. Well, but the problem is look at the red line on this chart, right? There is only about a 40% utilization of the current assets out there that are making these cathode technologies. So if you say that that utilization holds constant, then you're going to have one terawatt hour of cathode capacity instead of 2.3 terawatt hours. And even if you say, okay, well, Vivas, don't be crazy. Like we're going to increase our utilization to keep up with the market demands. No chemicals industry in practice gets to 100% utilization. Like it's a miracle if you get to 80% utilization. Can you break that down? Because that part is a little confusing to me. It's like, okay, we have 2.3 terawatt hours of cathode capacity. We're desperate for cathodes. Why wouldn't we just run the machines at 100 or whatever? Yeah, you know, so it's not. It's obviously not that simple. I'm curious why. It's the first principles argument is if you build a plant to run for a hundred thousand per year, a hundred thousand widgets per year, you should be able to run it for a hundred thousand widgets per year. In reality, you will always have issues. You will always have something break. You will always have somebody make a mistake. You will always have you know, some sort of outage somewhere. You'll have a software issue. You'll have a maintenance and reliability issue. These issues stack up to result in chipping away at the utilization rate of a factory. So any factory in the world, right? Like I would say Tesla Fremont is not being used at 100%. Um, Boeing's factory is not being used at 100%. All of Apple's Foxconn factories are not being used at 100%. There's a variation in terms of what is the utilization rate of a factory, depending on what, in what industry you're in whether you're in mining or in chemicals or in, or in manufacturing physical goods. And the argument that's being made over here is based on our data collection from the cathode industry is even though the plans stack up, the utilization rate needs to ramp up significantly to keep up with the demand for cathode that's commensurate to the battery demand. Fascinating. And this is like a, a really good example because I've heard Elon say a lot about like, you know, it's the slowest part or if one part of the car breaks out of like the 10,000 parts we have, like we can't ship yeah. it. So that's the battery thing is the same way. It's like, okay, at least the cathode's got to do grow and supply the anode, you know, all the raw materials, like all these steps of the process have to hit that 2.5 terawatt level for us to actually output that many batteries. And that's kind of where the, the concern is and where there's a lot of risk, I guess. And, and you bring up a great point over here, Gally, which is that the electric vehicle industry is highly innovative. Battery industry is highly innovative. We're, we're standing on the shoulders of 70 years of research and development in the battery industry, as we discussed earlier. But some of these other parts of the supply chain, they're not tremendously innovative. Like the technology for cathode isn't, isn't moving as fast as the rate of innovation that's happening in software, that's happening in batteries. So, you know, to give you an example of this, let's just take NMC chemistry. It's a slide three. It's taken us 
you know, 28 years of research and development to get NMC cathode chemistry. So that's nickel, manganese, and cobalt cathode chemistry up to the point where it is today. Is that the what's and, in Tesla? What's in the Tesla? No, 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 no. This, this, is, this is just one example of a cathode chemistry out there. Okay. There's NMC, there's NCA, and we'll dive into this a little bit later. But the basic point here is getting a chemistry up to speed before it can be commercialized takes decades. And there are individual companies within the supply chain globally that are working on this. And it's on a cathode basis and a battery cell basis. So an example of this is I have a really good friend, Adrian, who is working in a company called NPower. And what they noticed was they said, okay, what are the two biggest concerns of EV owners? Charge time and range. We're gonna tackle those. But the, the technology that they're building on lithium ion batteries to tackle those two challenges, right, have been based on years of research and development, and they still need a little bit more research and development before their energy, before their solution gets put into an energy product or it gets put into an electric vehicle. So, you know, with the research and development timeline for getting a chemistry on, on production so long, it's no wonder that then the production also lags behind because then you need to spend more time on building up utilization rate, on building up um, capacity worldwide even. Yeah, and I feel like we're getting a, a little off track, but I think that's uh, JB and Elon had a really interesting kind of tangent on a conference call a couple of years back talking about they see a million battery breakthroughs. There's one every week, but like the yep. difference between that and commercializing it at scale, that's where the rubber meets the road and where it's actually really difficult, you know, Absolutely. doing it in the lab, but like putting it in a million cars on the road that's the gap that you know that's what i call like the honeymoon phase that every other ev startup is in it's like can you actually make it this many batteries for a profit that's where no yeah. one's actually been able to do it besides tesla and i mean look the point that you're making right now can also be made about like solid state batteries for example right we've been hearing Basically, rumors that forever i've been hearing rumors about that for like probably 10 years solid state batteries will come the arc of technology always bends towards improvement solid state technology will come it just won't come anytime soon. Lithium ion battery is the propulsion technology for electric vehicles for at least the next decade, if not more. It'll, it will likely be the energy solution for grid scale storage as well, because there have been so many decades of development. Solid state isn't just gonna come and knock out these forms of technology tomorrow. Fascinating. And to get back to this um, slide 10, where we're at the raw material, uh, becoming a higher portion of cell cost. This is actually something really interesting that I hadn't thought much about, but you know, at some point, if there's too much demand for lithium, like our cost improvements are going down because it seems like Tesla's getting better at building batteries or everyone is, but at some point, more and more of that cost, like you're saying, is literally the raw materials. And if there's too much demand for those raw materials, that price could go up for like cobalt or, you know, what something else in the cathode. And so um, I think that's something that I really hadn't thought of. So can you break down this chart here with the cathode cost split? Absolutely. So you, you really hit the nail on the head when you said that if the cobalt price goes up, the lithium price goes up, then your bill of materials, your dollar per kilowatt hour cost of your battery cell will go up as well. So going back to our earlier conversation, when the first gigafactory was built and when all these mega factories are built, what is the point? The point is push down the operating cost of production as much as you can and increase the capacity. Size matters, but only to a certain point. Like we're reaching diminishing marginal returns in how much more 
battery factory sizes matter. Totally. Like there was that buffer that they squeezed, but then this is still all just raw materials. You can't get that out with scale. That's kind of interesting. Exactly. So, you know, and, and we see that on this chart over here. So you've got labor, you've got energy, um, you've got capital and, you know, capital is, is based on cost of capital. So we'll put that aside. Like every one unit increase of energy and every one unit increase of labor isn't necessarily going to create a commensurate level of increase in your output past a certain size. So that's the, that's the whole concept of, of diminishing marginal returns, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're at this point now where for a general battery cell, so these are lithium ion battery cells in general. Yep. And, and just as a side note, all of the data in this presentation is not anything Tesla specific. It is related to lithium ion batteries in general cool. because the industry is so wide. Approximately 50%, a little bit more than 50% of the, of the cost is the materials that are being used for the cathode. And then over here on the right-hand side, what you've got is, you know, you've got lithium, manganese, nickel, cobalt. These are the various types that are being used for the NMC battery chemistry, which is what we discussed earlier. Fascinating. So that's 45% of it is nickel cost. And that makes up, so over half the cost of the cathode is these raw materials. And are, do you have a slide of how that's changing over time or? So the reason that we didn't include a slide on how it's changing over time, because the driver behind how it changes over time is the price of the metal itself. And we have a whole section on, on lithium. And we'll talk exactly about how supply and demand of lithium impacts the price of lithium, impacts the cost of the battery cell, ultimately impacts the bill of materials. I mean, this is a huge domino effect that happens throughout the supply chain. Gotcha. And so what is this slide 11 here? Uh, If the supply chain doesn't break, there are other actions that battery companies could take to do improving battery economics? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to what I was saying about diminishing marginal returns, like we're going to get to a point where you can't just build bigger factories to get lower dollar per kilowatt hour. So right now the average dollar per kilowatt hour on a global basis for lithium ion is 125. Once you start getting to 90 or to 80, you're not going to get any more huge leaps forward. So battery makers right now are really concerned. The biggest battery makers have all been fighting for market share over the last five years, and they've been willing to sacrifice margin in order to do that. Mm -hmm. They're not willing to do that anymore. Now they're starting to fight for margin, at the cost of market share. And this is a classic battle that happens in, in tons of technology industries. And, and you know, it, it happens in all the industries that you cover on your channel as well. Like, do I fight for margin? Do I fight for market share? Uber versus Lyft. Like they just keep lowering their prices and have negative unit economics because they want market share. And it's a fascinating kind of clue about who has the leverage in this equation of now every car company is so desperate for batteries and hitting up all these battery companies that they're like, wait, we can actually raise prices and make a margin. It's not only Tesla buying, you know, from Panasonic. So that's to me an an interesting clue because we've seen a lot, everybody's seeming to partner with LG, right? And then a bunch of those companies are running into delays because LG just seemingly couldn't meet the demand or... Um, so it's just interesting to see how that dynamic has shifted recently. And absolutely. So in our conversations, and this is like our whole team at Benchmark Minerals around what are battery makers doing to improve their margins? What are they doing to improve their battery economics? Looking forward to the day where there's no more improvement just based on size and scale. And these are some ideas. So supply chain management is going to matter a lot. Locking in low prices of raw materials is going to matter a lot. So that would be futures. Sort of. Futures is one idea. Hedging is another idea. 
And that's um, something that your team did. And that's something that, right? And that te makes Tesla kind of unique is that battery materials supply chain team and expertise is something where Tesla is, is leading because they pioneer the lithium ion battery in electric vehicles. And to me, this is a kind of a weird competitive edge that um, Tesla has. The fact that my team even existed um, is just very interesting. Most automakers don't have a team that's looking at battery materials. Which hopefully will probably need to change in the future if they're actually serious about doing this, because it seems like you have to, you know, if you're Tesla and you want to think about ramping 10x, like you're really going to have to secure the contracts for all these raw materials far in advance, especially when you're talking about amounts that are like changing the industry. Gally, you are saying it much nicer than I am. If you are an automaker and you don't have a team looking at battery materials, you are already well behind the game at this point. Wow, that's crazy. So going beyond that, battery management matters a lot. It's not just about individual cells. It's about how the battery functions as a pack. Recycling, we have a whole section on recycling. We'll talk about that. And then there are also new revenue models that come with batteries. Like right now, the revenue model for battery makers is just spit out as many batteries as possible. The revenue model for automakers is spit out as many cars as possible. And the revenue model for utilities has been, you know, it's a game of making as many electrons as possible. And earlier I talked a lot about how utilities want to get into the game of battery storage. So a company that I really like in the space that I follow is a company called WeaveGrid. I put them on the slide because they're so interesting to me. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I see, I see yeah. the logo. So a poor of their CEO is a really good friend of mine. And what WeaveGrid does is they're working on a solution for integrating EV batteries that are out on the roads and being used in charging in you know, home and office settings with utilities so that the utilities can use the batteries as a value driver for them and the consumer gets to save money. Is this like vehicle to grid? Absolutely. So this is an example of vehicle to grid integration, but they're approaching it from the utility standpoint. So being in the utilities business is just a tough business. Like when you're a utility in the United States, for the most part, unless you work in a deregulated utilities industry like Texas, my home state, you usually have a regulated rate of return and you have an obligation um, that you cannot shirk to make sure that every single customer in your jurisdiction receives electricity. Yeah. The problem is the cost of production of electricity keeps rising. Once again, coal is uncompetitive against solar. And so utilities in general are looking for new business models for how can they leverage batteries beyond just being a storage asset to also being something that they can use to drive revenue, something that they can use to balance the load on the grid um, to lower their TND costs, to lower their maintenance and reliability costs. And something like a weave grid, which uses the network of lithium ion batteries in vehicles out there is a great example of this. And there are many other companies like this that are out there. Okay. So to continue on this train of thought here, you know, you're getting the cost down at the factory level, doing all these things. Uh, but at some point you won't be able to really improve the cost of the cathode that much. Like you're still relying on those raw materials after costs reach the theoretical limit. The future driver will be cathode chemistry differentiation, um, which is what you were alluding to earlier. We got NCA and CM and CM 523 and all these different um, yeah. sort of types here. So I guess that would be a game of like optimizing. We got too much nickel. Nickel's going up in price. Let's reduce our nickel a little bit to go for this. So let's take LFP, for example. And there's been a bunch of press out there about how Tesla's going to use LFP. But even beyond that, Western automakers in general want to use more LFP coming out of China. 
what does LFP lack? Lacks nickel and it lacks cobalt. The iron industry, the phosphate industry, these are large industries. There's a lot of material out there that's available. And so there's some risk mitigation in your operating cost of production and having your bill of materials kind of run away because of nickel prices running away when you shift to a chemistry like that. But really the argument in this page is not about the price of the materials. The argument in this page is as a way to differentiate their products, automakers will start to decouple the battery as a product and the vehicle body as a product. So what I'm saying over here is I will have a choice as a consumer in the future about what type of battery I want based on what I, how my driver profile is. And the example I give is always like my parents own a Model 3. They drive like five miles a day. I own a Model 3. I used to commute 50 miles a day. Why do we have the same battery pack? Why do we have the exact same battery chemistry? Yeah, you have your parents have so many raw materials that are so valuable and precious, almost not being used or leveraged. And but they're also they're also charging at home. I'm charging at superchargers, and like the the, the, the trickle rate of charging is different. Totally. So what I'm saying is, the one size fits all battery pack that's being done today for consumers works because that's what was needed to get the battery prices down. But in an effort to compete in the future, like a car company will be telling you as a consumer, hey, do you want a battery pack that's better for road trips or do you want a battery pack that's better for five mile commutes? Do you want a battery pack that's better in heavy snow environments or do you live in Texas and do you only want a battery pack that can deal with extreme heat? And the chemistries can be differentiated up to a certain extent to dictate the best performance. Fascinating. And it seems like, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you know about it or probably can't comment, but if those rumors in Tesla and China are true, that would almost be the first use case where we're seeing Tesla hit enough scale to where they're sort of having the same vehicle, but two different battery chemistries for different geographies. Like, it sounds like that's a sneak preview of what's to come, really, based on what you're saying. Absolutely. Even if you differentiate these chemistries, even if you try to get rid of the manganese, you try to get rid of the, the nickel, you try to get rid of the iron, whatever. It is a lithium ion battery. Every type of lithium ion battery has lithium. And for that reason, lithium is a very interesting industry that we should be diving into for the rest of this discussion. Awesome. So that perfectly segues us to the deep dive on the lithium chemicals industry. So we've got some really cool brine spodamine. I don't think I've ever even heard that word. Spodamine. Spodamine. Yeah. So there are two sources of lithium in the world. Brine ponds which are you basically pump out salty groundwater and you extract the salts from that groundwater. And this photo over here is a photo of SQM, one of the largest lithium companies in the world, their brine ponds in Chile. So just for scale and perspective, these brine ponds cover an area that's larger than the island of Manhattan. Wow, they're those crazy colors too. Yeah. And, and you actually have had a very unique uh, opportunity where you're not just like talking about this, like you visited in person a lot of these different types of lithium mining raw materials, like kind of sites, right? I've seen these things with my own eyes and it's, it's wow. a marvel of engineering that these can even exist. Yeah. And so, so, you know, why does this matter? What's, how does this tie into what's happening? I guess this is where all the magic really starts is we have to get the lithium out of the earth. So, I mean, 
sticking to sticking to Brian for a second. Why do we need to have Brian ponds covering more area than Manhattan to, to draw our lithium? The environmental impact of this is massive, right? There is no physics-based explanation for why we need brine ponds this large. It's just that that is the technology that has been used in the industry for about 50 years. And that's just been the, you know, the, ex the established accepted way in which lithium, in, in which the brine-based lithium industry performs. And so that's just what it is. But this kind of paradigm is not going to be able to help us. Like we can't cover like the entire country of Chile with brine ponds just to be able to get enough lithium for, for electric vehicles. But if we keep doing this, that's what it seems like is going to happen. And there's a bunch of interesting companies working on this as well on direct lithium extraction. Another company that I follow, it's a company called Energy X, where they're working on direct lithium extraction to eliminate the need for brine ponds so that you, know, you can produce 10x the amount of lithium that are being produced out of these brine ponds with like a thousand x less space wow and so can you fill us in on what is the brine pond like why do i need a big pond of brine to get out the lithium like what's actually happening there so what they do is and and they is just companies operating in brine in general they pump out salty groundwater into these ponds they let the sun evaporate the water out <laughs> over two years and then they like scrape up the salts and separate them into potassium, into magnesium, and into lithium salts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, look, I'll be frank, like this is a marvel of engineering, truly. Like the fact that, that there are companies in the world that can do this, the scope and scale is, is just absolutely mind boggling. But at the same time, you're you're very reliant on there being no rainfall. You're you're very reliant on like the force of physics doing its work over two years instead of finding a way to completely shortchange that and do it over two days or two weeks, for example. Yeah. And to be clear, I want to take a step back because you said this was very intensive from a fossil fuel and like sort of pollution bad for the planet perspective. But Tesla, their impact report this year has made it very clear that like even with the status quo of how their supply chain works, there's vastly less fossil fuel emissions in the life cycle of the Tesla Model 3 versus the internal combustion engine. Like it's already a way better solution. And you're like, look how polluted this is. We can do this better. The pace of innovation to get these emissions even lower, make that gap even bigger is what we're talking about. But That's I just want to make sure it's very clear that like electric vehicles, despite all of this, are even much better for the environment over the life cycle than the internal combustion engine. That is correct. EVs on a life cycle basis beat internal combustion engine any day. And let's just take Volkswagen data on this, which is what we're seeing on this chart. Okay. And th the reason I'm doing this is because the Tesla impact report is just recently published and everybody can go out and read it. And here's another chart from Volkswagen to back up the same claim from Tesla. Awesome. That on, a, on a life cycle basis, your EV is going to win. But at the same time, the part of this that's concerning is the dark blue portion, which is the vehicle production portion. It takes almost 2x the carbon footprint to make an electric vehicle as it goes out the factory gate, as does an internal combustion engine vehicle. Now, the reason for that is mostly driven by the battery components themselves. There hasn't been an imperative for the battery-based materials industry to grow carbon-free. These are not large industries 15 years ago. Right? Like they've been growing along with the growth of the platform technology that is battery as they've been used in all these applications. But now there is an imperative to find a lower carbon footprint. And that's why we have new companies 
like energy X that I mentioned earlier that are trying to target this problem. But on a life cycle basis, it's, it's just not even close. And as the EV industry keeps improving this carbon footprint, it's just going to keep getting better and better. Awesome. And so now maybe you can fill us in on the, this other type, um, Spoda. Spodumene. Spodumene. Yeah. So Spodumene, imagine mining. What do you think of when you think of mining? You think about rocks being blasted. You think about, you know, literally taking rocks out of the earth. That's what Spodumene mining is, is lithium is trapped in a rock somewhere and you're excavating that rock and taking the lithium out of that rock. I'm simplifying it overtly, but the point is that this is coming out of a physical rock as compared to coming out of a, a brine product, which is more like a watery solution type product. So the, so the lithium supply, it looks like it's very concentrated, or that's what you're showing here. Mm -hmm. um, mostly in Australia, it looks like, which is kind of surprising to me. Um, so can you fill us in a little about about this? Absolutely. So lithium, let's just be clear. Lithium is everywhere in the world. It, it is absolutely everywhere in the world. And it's everywhere in space and it's everywhere in the ocean as well. The only question is, where is it at a high enough quantity and concentration to where we can extract it economically given today's technology? So what we see on this chart over here is Australia does a lot of spodumene mining. And the other countries that we've shown over here, Chile, Argentina, and China do a lot of brine production. There's something called the lithium triangle, which encompasses Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile. So it's the Atacama Desert, basically, and mm -hmm. Salar de Uyuni in Bolivia, which has a lot of lithium resources. And then the USA has, you know, some lithium mines in a place in places like North Carolina that have existed for, for many, many years. And so while lithium is everywhere, these are the company, these are the countries that dominate the production. But we see on the right hand side of this chart is there are also certain companies that dominate the production of lithium products today. So just like how there was a tiered ranking in terms of quality for battery manufacturing, there's a tiered ranking in terms of quality for lithium manufacturing. Wow. Just because somebody says they produce lithium doesn't mean that lithium can be used in a battery. Only these companies that are on this chart right here can have their lithium products be used for battery manufacturing. So we've already taken a complicated problem and we've added one more constraint on top of it, which is that there's only a small number of companies that can even be, you know, creating products for batteries today. Yeah. And that good enough quality that could actually be put in the electric vehicle. Absolutely. Wow. And, and you hit, you hit the nail on the head. The question is, can they do it at quality and can they do it at scale? The specification that you need of the lithium chemical that can be used for a battery cell is so much higher than that, which is used for making glass, or making lubricants. So fun fact, there's actually more lithium in the glass in your iPhone than in the battery in the iPhone. Wow, that is a really cool fun fact. So this is exactly why earlier we mentioned the iPhone in the chart about batteries as a platform technology is even though battery was a platform technology, it didn't cause the rest of the supply chain to grow along with it because the quality that you needed for the battery inside an iPhone is so much less than the quality of the lithium product that you need in a battery in your electric vehicle. Fascinating. And what's this? Can you explain the breakdown here of lithium chemical supply versus lithium raw material supply? These two yeah, charts? Yeah, absolutely. So your lithium raw material supply is basically who can give concentrated brine or who can give a high enough percentage of spodumene that it can go through a chemical processing circuit. 
Okay. And then the chemical supply is who can produce something like lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate, which are the two primary forms of chemicals used for battery manufacturing worldwide. And they're two different steps. And these need to combine together to make an actual usable lithium ion battery. So all of these companies that are highlighted over here, Albemarle, Ganfeng, Tianchi, Livent, and SQM, they can do both. They've got assets to do the raw material supply and the chemical supply. Wow. But there are many companies out there. If you search for lithium company on Google, you will get like 500 results. But some of those companies only own a mine and just ship their mine product to a company that only does chemical manufacturing, for example. Mm-hmm. Moving on, it seems like what I think is kind of concerning here is this chart shows that the major lithium companies are struggling to meet their announced growth plans. Um, and I actually think kind of a weird story about that is that Tesla is one company that honestly has, I know they're a totally different piece of the supply chain, but in 2014, I think there were like 50 gigawatt hour capacity by 2020 in the gigafactory or something like that, which they're pretty much exactly on target with, which I thought was pretty crazy. Um, but this is a different step of the supply chain uh, or piece of the supply chain, I guess. Um, but I don't know, I'd be pretty concerned that a lot of, you know, almost every single one of these big lithium companies by a sig pretty significant amount has not reached the capacity they want it to. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're seeing on this chart is in 2015 or so, Benchmark started collecting data in terms of the additional capacity that was promised by these companies. Now that we're in 2020, here's where we're at in comparison. And the reason that every company falls short is because number one, this is just a hard business. Like there's all sorts of geopolitics. Um, capital is always constrained and getting to a high quality for your materials is also difficult. And that's what we're seeing over here on this next slide over here. The process of manufacturing high quality lithium chemicals is complicated. Like I, I'm an engineer. I don't even know what the hell's happening in this chart, right? Like there's just so many different reagents. There's so many different steps. And you've got, you know, acidic sulfuric acid as one of the inputs as a reagent. I mean, acidic sulfuric acid, there's all sorts of environmental regulation around the use of that product. So, you know, each of these steps on this chart is a different, you know, 50 million, $100 million machine, basically, that is wow. custom made for just this one application. And it's like, yeah, no wonder it's so hard to create lithium hydroxide at large scale. Now, there will be a first principles-based physics argument that it really shouldn't be that hard. And it's true. You know, that's what Elon argument, is thinking. The physics argument holds up that this really shouldn't be that hard, right? So I'm simply pointing out what's happening in the industry today. But what I'm not saying is that there's not room for innovation. There is room for innovation. There Sounds is like we room. need innovation here. There is room for innovation. There is room for significant cost cutting. There's room for shortening the number of steps it takes to get from a hard rock or to a lithium hydroxide chemical over here, for example. I'm not saying it's an impossible problem by any means. Wow, but this is, that complexity is why it's been so slow to occur. Um, Absolutely. And so, and it looks like we're, we're adding yet another layer of complexity here on the next slide of once you're qualified um, or it has, a project has to be qualified to really get that contract. I'm assuming this is kind of the cash flow mismatch, mismatch what you were saying, like it's, you know, this is why the futures battery planning team could have so much importance is if you're able to contract in the future with a trusted partner and give them that security that you'll buy that much lithium, then maybe they can really get a head start and actually, you know, putting in the CapEx to do it. Yeah, but even then, just because you promise that you're going to use their material, you won't actually use it unless you can ensure that that material meets a very high quality threshold 
before you put it into your battery pack, before you put it into your vehicle. Mm-hmm. You think about the incentive structure over here. If you're the battery cell maker, you are on the hook to make sure that that battery works, which means simplistically, you need to make sure that the materials that are being used to make that battery cell are of the highest quality possible. So if you're the chemical manufacturer, you need to ensure that you can consistently hit a very high specification constantly, you know, 24, seven, 365 this year, next year, and the year after that. That's mm-hmm. a really hard problem at large scale. I mean, that's like saying every single, like every single Tesla needs to look like the exact same. Every single Panasonic battery cell needs to look the exact same at large scale. These are hard problems. And now moving back to this chart about the the emissions, um, this is pretty interesting. The different carbon intensity of the brine versus the spodamine versus, and, and even in Chile versus Argentina, um, pretty big. It looks like almost triple for Chilean brine versus Ar- Australian. So the, the the main driver around this is, the main drivers around the production of these types of chemicals are electricity costs, water costs, land costs, electricity generation sources are going to be different or using a coal plant or using natural gas. And so that's what leads to this conclusion over here. And, you know, I'll give a shout out to my friends at Minrevo, which is another consulting firm that prepared this. They're the ones who went out and found the data for this. But I mean, the implication is pretty clear over here, which is Australian spodumene is a great source for your lithium compounds, but it's a carbon intense source. So there are going to have to be trade-offs over here of if you want to lower the emissions of the production of your vehicle, do you choose to go with the lower carbon source, even though there may be more risk of qualification, even though there may be higher operating cost of production? I mean, these are constantly the challenges that any supply chain manager is facing. Wow, that's really crazy. And um, and this this next chart is really interesting because for a lot of people, you know, Elon Musk hinted that would Tesla get into mining seemed like kind of a joke. Um, and, you know, going through this presentation, talking to you, I'm realizing how difficult that actually is and how much of a beast, like sort of a big, hairy problem this is. And this the timing uh, step is really interesting because cell manufacturing, I think, is what Tesla's an application like that's what Tesla is doing right now on the, the bottom two steps of this chart. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those are just a fraction less than half the time you needed or more than you know you could more than double that with all the previous steps so it's like almost tesla's not even doing the hardest part it sounds like or at least the, the part that takes the most time uh i guess this chart is very scary every automaker should look at this chart and be scared <laughs> every battery company should look at this chart and be scared let's just be very upfront given where we are today in technology trends for the manufacturing of lithium chemicals. Given where we are in terms of how much consumers are demanding electric vehicles and how much utilities are demanding grid scale batteries, there is no way the supply will be able to meet the demand starting mid-decade. Now, one of the reasons is, is exactly what you pointed out, which is there's a dislocation in the timeline between all these different steps. I mean, finding a mine is really difficult and I'll tell you why. you know, this is going to sound so mind blasting, but how does one person find a mine? I'll tell you what they do. They go out and dig like a thousand holes and hope that one hits a jackpot. So imagine you (laughs) guess and check. (laughs) Imagine you broke a bone and you went to the doctor and they said, I'm going to do a thousand cuts on your body until I find the bone. You'd be dead. There's a reason that x-rays exist for a reason. 
So once again, going back to talking about technology has not kept up. There's not first principles based thinking on modern physics and on modern technology in some of these earlier parts of the supply chain. Mining is still done today, very much in similar ways that it was done 30 years ago. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that some people write in the comments over here that they work in mining and technology is, has infiltrated the industry. That is very true. But for the most part, exploration is still like a, you know, a shotgun approach. Dig a thousand holes and find the one that works and great, you've got the one that works. So that's why the timeline is so long. Chemical processing, we already talked at length about why it's difficult to make chemicals. Once again, it's not, it's not impossible to speed that process up, but this is a reflection of what happens in the world today, given the industry players today. Yeah, and it's almost like this makes me excited about what the boring company's potential is in mining, but also like skeptical that it will be the whole solution because what Elon's done there for tunneling, this kind of hits home for me because my grandpa started like a tunneling company um, in Italy, like decades and decades ago. So to see Elon Musk come in and basically electrify those same massive machines that dig up rock um, and kind of make it efficient and much more cheaper to do that actual like excavation piece. You know, I, I personally think there's a lot of, uh, cross applications of like, okay, well, this electrification of the tunneling equipment could do also do electrification of mining equipment. Elon Musk's hinting at mining. He runs the boring company. Lots of overlap there of like really long-term moonshot potential of electrified mining from the boring company to help Tesla get materials. So that's one piece of like excitement for the boring company. But the other piece is like, that's only one tiny little step of this whole equation that we're talking about here. Like just as complex as, you know, the whole uh, cathode, anode production, the chemical processing, once you get that out of the ground, you know, there's still a bunch of huge gaps in between. We don't need just a Tesla in the vehicle manufacturing space. We need a company that is as innovative as Tesla in mining. We need a company that is as innovative as Tesla in chemical processing. We need these companies to go back to first principles and build up what is the lowest operating cost of production possible and to go on and pursue new technology or else there's no way the supply chain will keep up. Yeah. And I, one of my favorite mottos is like the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. Like, yes, these are massive, huge problems, but there are also massive, huge companies waiting to be built that solve these problems, I mean, which is I kind of exciting. Chart, I don't look at this chart and get dissuaded. I look at this chart and get excited because the market has created a need. There's a demand and supply shortfall. There is space for an innovative company to come in there and solve this problem. That unplanned new supply part of your chart right there. That's a big, Absolutely. big window. And you know what, when you give humanity a chance to go out and solve difficult problems, humanity finds a way to solve that problem. We've seen this consistently time and time again throughout history. So the question is just who is going to go out and do it. It's not if it will be solved. We have the technology, we have the physics knowledge to do it. And now I'm even getting more pumped. You're getting me pumped about battery day in a different way, which is that Tesla to scale the two terawatt hours, like they're fit, like your old team and colleagues are all thinking about this nonstop of like, okay, if we're going to do two terawatt hours, you know, blow that chart that you showed up earlier out of the water with how much batteries we're building, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to process all that, how to mine all that. Like they must be thinking about that. So I'm very curious if they've innovated there, or maybe they've innovated in ways to use less of these materials and stretch them to go farther and not put as much stress as we'd thought on those pieces of the supply chain. And that's why they're going to be able to ramp much quicker than we would have expected. Um, but it just, to me, it makes me even more curious about, okay, the new cell is dope, a little more efficient, a little cheaper to build, but what is in that new cell and how much have we locked up the access for the next decade for the, you know, two terawatt worth of materials for that new cell? To me, that's even more, I'm even more curious about that part now. When you have a battery that can go million miles, for example, 
that means that that battery can last 30, 40 years. That means that I, as a consumer, when I buy a million mile battery powered car in 10 years, replace the car body and hold on to the battery. That's a completely different way to think about the automotive segment and to think about the automotive buyer even. When you have better and high quality materials, your battery cell lasts longer. And the other way to overcome the severe material shortage and where there's space for innovation is recycling. Yeah. And that also makes me really hopeful of like, if we can go autonomous and get a million miles and, and the drivetrain lasts a million miles and instead of, you know, two or 300,000 miles for the internal combustion engine car, we only need to replace a car every 30 years versus every 10 years. Maybe that makes new car sales be 30 million a year, not 90 million a year. Or I think we could, you know, the car is utilized, what, 5% of the time? Like there's all these empty seats driving around anywhere, everywhere, wasting energy. Um, like I feel like if we could make that more efficient, that's another very interesting lever here that I think could be a hope of like, uh, you know, if the cars last longer and people are buying less new cars, that we won't need quite as many materials. Um, and Absolutely. Then, and then that brings us to the a perfect segue to our next part of the whole recycling component, which is now that the Model S has been on the road for eight years, um, some of these EVs are starting to get to the end of life, you know, okay, setting up a whole mine in these brine ponds and getting all this lithium and reprocessing it, that's a grind. If we can just take a little bit of lithium out of the battery that we use that's already in good shape, um, this is a really exciting potential. We've seen J.B. Straubel, the co-founder of Tesla, leave to mysteriously start Redwood Materials, a battery recycling company. I have to think they're going to partner with Tesla or I'm baffled if they wouldn't. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm really curious, maybe you could uh, walk us through this chart of this, you know, it's kind of saying what I was just saying is now we're starting to get into this new era of where battery recycling is going to move into the spotlight. The history of battery recycling is whenever you're done with your battery, you'd either just throw it away or you'd give it to a general purpose technology recycler. But now there are dedicated companies looking at doing just battery recycling. So what you see over here are examples of some companies in the world, right? Atero in India, Glencore is doing stuff in Canada. There are a few companies in Europe like Umicore, which makes cathode is also looking at recycling. You very rightly pointed out Redwood Materials. So JB is somebody who I've worked with, I respect very, very much. Let's see what they've got up their sleeve. They're gonna come out with more details soon on what they're doing. But the fact that they're interested in recycling should be, should be a sign to the market that there is a huge opportunity and taking advantage of the large input feedstock of used battery cells coming back to yep. make materials again for new batteries. And Redwood Materials has put out zero info about what the hell they're doing, but they have a logo and their logo offers the biggest clue ever, which is it's a closed little loop. And that's what they've Tesla's hinted at so many times is a closed loop recycling, um, really this idea to capture as much as possible from the waste. So I've always thought that that's like gotta be their focus. Absolutely. And I mean, even the impact report that was released a couple of weeks ago has a huge section on, on battery recycling, yeah. which by the way, like shout out to the people who wrote that report. One of my favorite ever reads from Tesla. Like, yeah. Shout out to report. Martin. That was, I, I hope they keep doing this every year. Cause that was so good. And like all the stuff you're saying of how do we think about cobalt? What's our water usage? You know, all these things we're kind of discussing, like Tesla's actively working on to really just push that envelope on the life cycle emissions to be as good as possible. Like, I think people don't really realize that. Like, so many electric car companies are just like, oh, it's like greenwashing. Like, Tesla, I, I really just think they don't get enough credit for, like, literally, like, the whole vegan leather seats thing is kind of an example to me of where, like, you know, I'm not a vegan. I love a good cheeseburger, but I'm trying to reduce my meat consumption, you know. But 
just that ethos of like, we want to reduce animal usage, we want to be ahead of the curve, we want to try a new material, like they don't really get enough, you know, just kind of as a shareholder and like fan of the company, I'm like, I love that ethos that they have. And it's it, it goes to every little part of their supply chain. They're thinking about how to maximize that sustainability. But for recycling, it's not just going to be a game of, of the companies. It's also going to be a game of partnerships. So what we see over here, just as an example, in Europe, there's one example of a partnership between Umicore and Northvolt and BMW. So Umicore, like I said, makes cathodes, but also wants to get into the recycling game. Northvolt will take the cathode from Umicore, make cells. Those cells will be then used in BMW vehicles. And when the BMW vehicle reaches end of life, that cathode from that cell in that vehicle will get back to Umicore. And so it'll close the loop. So this is just another example. There are many examples like this of pan industry collaboration between companies in the supply chain. That's also what's fascinating about the battery supply chain. 10 years ago, each of these companies and each of these segments were working in their own silos and maintaining arm's length relationships as a consumer versus a producer. But now these companies are partnering together because they're seeing the value in the challenge, but they're also seeing that they need to partner in order to keep up with the demand out there. Yeah, and I also think it's like everything was kind of child's play in beta before Tesla because it's like now we actually have a million cars on the road. Like that is a lot of stuff to recycle. And I feel like before Tesla really existed, like there wasn't that conviction that there would be millions and millions of EVs on the road to build this recycling infrastructure for. You know, it doesn't make sense. But now that Tesla's really hit scale, it's sort of like an inevitability that we're going to need to work on this. And I'm curious, you know, okay, so I have a battery pack that gets recycled. Like, can you give a rough estimate? Is it like 50% of the materials I can reuse at the end of it that I can use back? Is it 80%? Is it 5%? You know, how, how should we think about how much they can extract from that used pack? So with more process innovation, you can get to a point where around 90% of your materials will be highly wow. recyclable. But we're not there today. So today, we're at You know Elon and is going to drop some crazy stat like that on Battery Investor Day, though. I'm and sure. I would love that. <laughs> I, I would totally welcome that and love that. And I hope it happens. Yeah, that's awesome. Actually, and I wanted to go on this other chart. What I noticed that you didn't mention is China out here dominating capacity again for recycling. China dominates capacity for recycling because of two reasons. Number one, they've got 65 to 70% of the battery factories in the world within their borders, as well as over 50% of the electric vehicles in their borders as well as so many laptops and cell phones that also produce the batteries. So they're seeing this challenge. A lot of it is also being driven by regulation in these, in, in these different geographies. But China's done a very good job of having directive policy towards recycling on a national level. In the US, the state of California has done quite well in terms of putting out regulation on recycling. And this is true of recycling in general, technology, product recycling, as well as battery recycling. But if we get more directive regulation at a state level, at a national level across the US, the market opportunity will increase. Some of those companies that are in the North American portion of this chart will start to ramp up their capacity to keep up as well. Yeah, and this is a fascinating um, geopolitical situation that's unfolding. Like if the world was a game of risk, I think what China is doing is genius of like, okay, we're not, our expertise in the internal combustion engine's not there. Um, but there's a massive transition in the electric vehicle push, we can really be a leader and a dominant player in this future of propulsion technology. And, you know, what, re going through your presentation here, looking at the data about how they're really on in a place to really own the infrastructure and backbone of creating these batteries. 
Um, it seems like they're really ahead of the curve of almost every country, and that in terms of capacity at least. Um, and they're really pushing for it. You know, they got Tesla in there to build a factory there. I have. There's just so much going on where I see China really pushing forward and becoming a leader in this technology um, that I think is just a really brilliant move for them, like geopolitically. And I'm curious if you could, uh, you have a slide here about the recycling industry in its nascent stages and multiple threats to reach full scale and profitability. Um, kind of the theme of our discussion of like things are a lot harder than they seem, like to just recycle a battery and get 90%. That's just magic. So Once again, these are all solvable challenges. By yeah. no means am I saying these are roadblocks that are going to stop the industry from growing at all. But if we were to take an honest look at the industry today, these are some of the challenges that recycling faces. So number one is the fact that for any chemicals industry and recycling at its core is a chemicals industry, you need to have the lowest operating cost possible to be able to compete. So what you need in recycling is a large input feedstock for the number of battery cells coming back. So issue number one is whenever EV cells are retired, they still have value left in them and they're being downcycled and being used as energy storage battery cells. So for example, in China, BYD buses, they have their battery packs for two and a half or three years, and then they're using them to do energy storage projects for, for behind the meter grid applications. Wow. And this photo over here is Amsterdam Arena is using recycled Nissan Leaf batteries to power itself. Wow. Wow, it's awesome, but at the same time, what does that mean? That means that those battery cells are not going into a recycling circuit yet that they're being extended and being put out and deployed for even longer. Oh, inter yeah, the second life, it's differentiating from uh, the recycling part. That's interesting, because I know Rivian mentioned that they're big on their second life batteries for stationary storage as well. Absolutely, and every single automaker is going to want to be big into second life, because going back to earlier around generating new revenue models around batteries, rather than just selling batteries and getting the revenue, this is a very easy way to generate more revenue is, you know, I don't know what the business model is around the Amsterdam Arena, but I'm willing to bet that somebody was the asset owner of that battery and depreciated that battery over use and then went ahead and sold it and essentially recouped what they would have written down in terms of the battery value. And so this last part of the presentation, I guess, caught me by surprise. Where do oil companies fit in? Um, because I just assumed they would be dinosaurs, um, you know? excavating yeah. dinosaur juice and that was their business model that was kind of irrelevant at this point oil companies have a place in the world but they're in for a rude awakening or should i say a crude awakening <laughs> awesome so transportation today as a segment accounts for about 55 percent of global oil demand but the world is increasingly going to electric cars so what's going to happen by hmm. definition that means that the transportation segment of oil use is going to be declining in its share. This is a huge concern for oil companies. So there's a couple of things that they're doing, right? So one is they're trying to shift away from transportation and into becoming power companies. So BP, for example, every single year puts out something called the statistical review of world energy. I forget the exact wording, but, but benchmark contributes to that report. And they explicitly state, that they may look at power generation assets and become an electricity provider potentially. That's a, that's a big shift. Oil companies are trying to become energy companies and trying to provide energy of all forms. Wow. Petrochemicals is also growing. So Mukesh Ambani, who is 
who's the owner of Reliance Industries, which is India's biggest company, they are transitioning their oil strategy away from oil and towards petchem. And we're seeing this happen in other oil refining regions of the world. Oil companies have a place. It's not like oil is going to disappear immediately. Although for up to me, every single car on the road would be an electric vehicle. But the reality of the world is we just, we need to retire the old fleets as well as we need to keep putting more and more electric vehicles on the road and have the supply chain build up so we can put those electric vehicles on yeah. the road. It's a multi-decade, multi-decade transition. Yeah. And so the problem, however, for the performance of an oil company is investors are demanding more of them. So on one hand, that's a social thing. So last week, the Pope came out and told 1.2 billion Catholics in the world to divest from fossil fuel companies. I mean, like that's how big the environmental concern has gotten now. Jim Cramer goes out and says like oil stocks are done. Like there's, there's nothing that oil company CEOs can do in order to, to make their stocks attractive anymore. And what we see over here on the right hand side is the IRR that you need to show. So the internal rate of return that you need to show for a project to make it investable keeps growing for big oil and big coal. And if you compare that to the, to the fact that oil prices are going down and coal prices are going down and there's a correlation between the price and the return, you know, that value creation spread is getting smaller and smaller for these companies. They cannot just be producing oil. They cannot just be producing coal anymore. Wow. But at the same time, we just spent so much time talking about how battery metals is undercapitalized, but how there hasn't been a lot of process innovation in battery materials and the battery supply chain. So my suggestion here is we shouldn't abandon the oil companies. These are companies that are well capitalized with large balance sheets, relationships with governments all over the world, and a retail infrastructure that reaches billions of people. They have a place in the world, and they have a place in the battery supply chain as well. I think oil companies should be brave enough to make investments in specialty chemicals that are used in the battery supply chain. I would love to see an oil company go out and acquire a lithium company, get involved in nickel sulfate production, get involved in cathode production, partner with those companies and underwrite those projects so that when they go out and say to their shareholders that they're transitioning to being an energy company or a technology solutions company rather than an oil company, they really put their money where their mouth is. Yeah. And that's been a really frustrating thing for me is, you know, you see these companies like Exxon, uh, you know, still paying massive dividends, you know, tripling down higher and higher payout ratios, getting more and more levered, like kind of just like like dying on their sword and really not pushing it. But it's like, no, like you have a chance. You have this billions in cash flow, cut the dividends, stop doing these BS buybacks, buy a couple of these chemical refining plants, you know, start pushing, doing exactly what you're saying, kind of that 180 of capital allocation. Because at this end of the day, we're talking about that energy that powers the propulsion technology of society, whether it's oil or whether it's the materials that go in the battery, either way, it's how humans and stuff gets from point A to B. And so it's, you know, they're either, either someone else is going to do it or they can do it. Um, but it's, yeah, I actually, I've never heard this pitch, but I think it's, it's And there genius. are a couple of oil companies that, that have, I, I will say this, a couple of oil companies have said the right things over the last couple of years. So for example, Shell, Ben Vader Bearden is their CEO, has been very clear that he identifies with the climate reality, that he thinks that climate change is real. And he knows that Shell cannot be an oil company anymore. And an example of what Shell did 
in order to actually act upon that marketing pitch was they went out and acquired a battery company called Sonnen. They went out and started acquiring electricity and distribution assets themselves. BP, BP has gone out and done charging stations in, in the UK. Total, which is the big French multinational oil company has gone and acquired Saft, which is a battery maker. So once again, what's important is beyond, is, is moving beyond the marketing pitch. What's important is deploying capital. And it's interesting because you give them a hint of where to deploy the capital as well here, showing that the certain margin of chemical processing appears to be the most attractive part of that supply chain. Is that what this chart showing that with that gap of hard rock lithium versus the battery grade lithium hydroxide? Yeah. What are, when oil companies are doing petrochemicals, fundamentally, what are they doing? They're taking a low value natural resource and they're upgrading it to a specialty chemical for use in industrial applications. That's really no different than taking spodumene or brine and upgrading it to be used in battery cell manufacturing. Mm -hmm. The thinking is the same, just the input and the output are different. So for here on slide 32, you're saying for the USA, we need to move beyond making only cars and battery cells. So you're saying we should vertically integrate to push more of this supply chain you know, in-house, almost as a strategic resource, you know, geopolitically and just infrastructure-wise for the country, you know, Tesla's really pushed the envelope on cell manufacturing and the application, but now it's time to domestically move further down that stack? I spent a lot of time with governments all over the world. And although your, your viewership is global, Gally, like you live in New York City and I'm in New York City right now, so we're talking about the American context over here. But everything I'm seeing here is applicable to places like Canada, Australia, the European Union, simply making cars and simply making battery cells is not enough. To truly get the full value of the supply chain and to geopolitically de-risk the supply chain, what's important is vertically integrating every single step. So what I'm saying over here is advice to the US. It's not enough to just make cars. It's cool that we've got all these battery factories over here. But you know what? The US is announcing a new battery plant every four months. China is announcing and building a battery plant every week. We are so far behind here in the US, we've got to catch up. This conversation has really made me like 10 times more curious about Tesla's battery investor day because I feel like what Elon Musk has promised is breaking a lot of the rules that the normal industry is seeing. Um, so, you know, that makes me really curious about like, I don't know if you can comment on this or not based on your work of like what like where is this innovation occurring to scale batteries so quickly and in such a big way that would seemingly break these natural resource supply chains my more and more thinking is that they're going to use less of these natural resources per battery somehow that's one of the key levers they're pulling um, yes. and the other key lever is this will simply just take time and it will take them five to ten years to hit that two terawatts and it will happen more gradually and that's how it'll be accommodated so in my mind, the million mile battery is important because when you have a million mile battery, once again, you just don't need to make new batteries as fast, which means you're just consuming less raw materials over time. And that diversion between supply, between supply and demand starts to close as a result. And uh, I'm curious what you think about these other companies like, you know, Rivian and Amazon. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on those players getting into this space, even though they're being so behind? Um, do you have any thoughts on like, Amazon making an electric vehicle push and have you heard anything about that? 
Well, Amazon made an investment in Rivian and Amazon bought Zooks. So anybody who tells you that Amazon isn't trying to be a transportation company is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I feel like they're knocking on the door and it's so, so fascinating that they won't partner with Tesla and they're trying to build their own stack. Look, um, I'll tell you why though. It, it's not because they want to do transportation. Look at Amazon's valuation. Amazon's value, I, you know, the, the stock price this morning was what, $2,700 a share. When you have a stock price that high, what you're doing is you're making an implicit agreement with your shareholders that you will create double the value or double the cash flow five years from now as to today. And Amazon is basically in like everything right now, right? Like they've got Amazon Media Group, they've got Amazon Web Services, they've obviously got the consumer business, they've, they've got their music business. There's only a few industries that Amazon hasn't entered in a big way, which will allow them to generate that cash flow to justify that valuation, that ever increasing stock price. Transportation happens to be one of those. Your last slide here really hits home with me because it's why I'm so passionate about Tesla. This, you know, sustainable energy and clean air, Tesla's mission. Uh, that's why Battery Day is going to be one of the most important days in their history because it's showing us the technology that will fuel the backbone of all of these industries. Uh, and so what gets me so excited is that, like I started out earlier in this episode saying, you know, Aramco is a $2.2 trillion company. And if Tesla is that full energy stack, like this is a multi-trillion dollar opportunity they're tackling. Uh, that's why I'm still holding every single share I own and still think the future is so bright and we're just so, so early because they're pushing the envelope on this battery technology so, so quickly um, you know, I'm kind of curious if you agree with my understanding of like Tesla's several years ahead here. That's what people like Sandy Monroe are seeing. They're the only 400 and 300 mile range EVs. Like it seems like they're clearly ahead and it seems like the writing on the wall is that they're about to unveil an even better sell. And so what the status quo of this conversation was is Tesla's years ahead of this battery technology and actually about to get even a couple more years ahead um in terms of actually the cell technology and then in manufacturing they're also years ahead and then in the battery materials group they're also years ahead like the deeper i dive into this the deeper tesla's competitive advantage and moat appears to be and so i'm curious if that's similar to your takeaway and if there's even anyone on your radar that is remotely building up the kind of capabilities to build evs at scale in the multi-million of, of units per year amount like tesla is because i really I struggle to think of who's the next company after Tesla to build a million long range EVs a year. Like, you know, who would that be? And it'll probably be five to 10 years after Tesla hits a million, but. So a couple of thoughts. So for, for all of you out there, the way that I met Gally is we spoke on back-to-back -back panels at Fully Charged Live in Austin in February. And Gally's presentation, which I loved, was called The Path to One Trillion. Let Tesla me tell you my view of the, of the path to 1 trillion for Tesla. The path to 1 trillion is they will be the first company to truly make the vehicle a platform. Between all the synergies that they get from their battery advantage, from their supply chain advantage, from the autonomy integration with the electric vehicle in-house and the data capability of connectivity, they will make the vehicle a platform faster than anybody else and make the vehicle platform, and it will be the biggest value and revenue generator in the automotive industry since the very beginning. That is the path to one trillion for Tesla. Wow, that's unbelievable. And that, I guess, ties in the autonomy piece. And on the battery piece, what are your thoughts of um, the licensing out this technology? Because that's something at first I was like, oh, 
you know, some of my MBA spreadsheet New Yorker friends are like, oh yeah, they should license this out. There's way more, you know, they're basically making other companies put up the CapEx, pulling forward all these gross profit dollars if we build 10 gigafactories today because we license it out to Volkswagen, to Fiat, and et cetera. But this to me presentation tells me why that's BS and would never happen is because it's like, it's just way more complicated than that. And actually the hard work of like getting the lithium there, actually extracting it, actually there's only so much we can refine. Like even Tesla scaling to two terawatt hours is just them squeezing every little drop of supply out of this supply chain or capacity out of this supply chain. So to think that they could easily just replicate that with another company to me seems ridiculous. And so that this has made me a lot more skeptical that Tesla's ready to license this out. Maybe the design is ready, but the actual factory building part is just it, it's just we're way too early to even think about that you 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 are absolutely correct tesla's advantage is is enduring there's a true moat once again the the battery costs have come down as a result of so many years of innovation but tesla's so much further than everybody else that it's hard for everybody else to catch up tesla's advantage in in integrating the various components in-house is also an advantage that's hard to overcome I will give credit to some companies out there. For example, I'm impressed that GM has publicly stated that they're going all electric, but also gone out and made a $2.3 billion investment with LG Chem in Lordstown to build a battery factory and vehicle factory together. I'm impressed that VW has taken a massive equity stake in Northvolt and has also brought CATL to build a factory in, in Germany. For their vehicles. So the industry is much bigger than Tesla. And as much as I personally love Tesla, you know, we need everybody to succeed so that we can have electric cars. Not everybody's going to succeed at the same level as Tesla, but as a global species, we do better in our fight against climate change. If everybody can put out more electric vehicles, if everybody can put out more grid scale batteries, if these supply chains can grow to make that a reality. And this is the part where I want to end it of like all my friends when I'm like, Elon Musk is the most like if Elon Musk makes a dumb tweet or something, I get all these texts from my friends and I get in all these big arguments and I'm like, Elon is doing more for humanity than anyone else. Like, how do you not understand that? Because this whole concept of accelerating the transition to sustainable energy by five to 10 years diminishes so many long tail consequences of the rise in temperature and all the crazy weather and just natural effects that could have. Like there's, it's the amount of urgency to switch over the entire transportation industry immediately could not be more urgent and pressing. And it's really frustrating to me that a lot of my generate my peers in my generation just does not understand the urgency because like everyone's protesting Greta Thunberg. Awesome. But was the technology standing in the streets is not going to make everyone drive green vehicles. We literally need to build massive factories that pump out a shitload of batteries. That is the only way to do it and fix this thing. And Tesla is the only company doing it. And what I really like what you just said is they kicked everybody else in the ass. So Tesla will change the world and they're going to lead all this, but they can't do it alone. But even more importantly is they change the industry. And I'm curious if you could really confirm and validate that to us, because what I see is like the Gigafactory, like this wouldn't have happened. Like Elon Musk and Tesla and JB Straubel, Elon and JB scheming up, being like, we're going to do the Gigafactory. That's how we need to do it. That idea, that bold move in 2014, 
has single-handedly changed the, the structural course of the history or the, the trajectory of, of, of fossil fuel emissions for the planet in a massively material way. And that's why, like, as much as this is like nerdy battery materials and we're getting deep in this technology, like, to me, this is one of the most important things happening in humanity right now that everyone should be paying attention to and why Battery Investor Day is like, it's so hyped, but it's even underhyped because of that. And like, I don't know, I'm just curious, like, if you could riff off that and if you could kind of confirm that that Tesla really has been the one to change the world in that way. Tesla has already changed the world. The fact that every single legacy automotive company right now is going out and putting out electrification plans is because Tesla showed the world that EVs can work for the consumer. The reason that we've got 2.5 terawatt hours of capacity built out in battery cells is because Tesla showed the world that the Gigafactory could be a value driver for the company. The reason we've got so many autonomous driving companies is because Tesla went out and put autonomous vehicles on the road. Like these technologies have already changed the world because they've created a global movement of more companies wanting to get into the space. And Tesla will continue to change the world. And that's why I am super excited for Tesla Battery Day because I don't even know what they're going to announce. And whatever they're going to announce is going to set the new industry standard that everybody else will follow. Awesome. Well, thank, on that note, I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing this uh, all with us. I feel like I learned so, so much. And I'll totally, if you haven't, check out this presentation. I'll put the link. It's got the QR code here so you can just use your phone and and check it out. But really appreciate you and your team putting in all the work uh, for this and just you know helping us spread the word on, on hyperchange. Really, it's and awesome. Gally, look, I want to thank you because when I was an employee, a lot of us who were employees at Tesla watched your channel and loved your content. So please keep doing the great work. <laughs> I really love the stuff that you put out there as well. Yeah, that blows my mind. But anyway, thank you so much, man. Peace out. Have a good day. Thank you.